Hi everyone, this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, and I sure do appreciate being here with you telling stories about the Old West one more time. And on this week's episode, we'll hear a selection of stories about the Texas Rangers. Specifically, we'll be reading from Captain Bill McDonald, Texas Ranger, A Story of Frontier Reform by Albert Bigelow Payne. We'll hear about corruption, frontier justice, trying to beat back lynch mobs. We'll hear about law in the Texas Panhandle in the 1890s. So without further ado, Captain Bill McDonald, Texas Ranger, A Story of Frontier Reform. Chapter 1 Introducing Captain Bill. Captain Bill McDonald is a name that in Texas, and in the districts lying adjacent thereto, makes the pulse of a good citizen and the feet of an outlaw move quicker. Its owner is a man of 56, drawn out long and lean like a buckskin thong, with the endurance and constitution of the same. In repose, Captain Bill is mild of manner. His speech is a gentle vernacular. His eyes are like the summer sky. I have never seen him in action, but I am told that then his voice becomes sharp and imperative, that his eyes turn into points of gray which pierce the offender through. Two other features bespeak this man's character and career, his ears and his nose, the former alert and extended, the ears of the wild creature, the hunter, the latter of that stately Roman architecture which goes with conquest because it signifies courage, resolution, and the peerless gift of command. His nerves are of that quiet and steady sort which belong to a tombstone, and he does not disturb them with tobacco or stimulus of any kind, not even with tea and coffee. In explanation, he said, Well, you see, sometimes I have to be about two-fifths of a second quicker than the other fella, and a little quiver then might be fatal. Incidentally, it might be added that Captain Bill... They love to call him that in Texas, is ranked as the best all-around rapid-fire marksman in the state. And for the other fella to begin shooting is believed to be equivalent to suicide. Add to these various attributes a heart in which tenderness, strict honesty, and an overwhelming regard for duty prevail. And you have, in full, Captain William Jesse MacDonald, formerly Deputy Sheriff, Deputy U.S. Marshal, and Ranger Captain, now State Revenue Agent of Texas. It is the story of this man that we shall undertake to tell. During his 25 years or more of service in the field, he reduced those once lawless districts known as the Panhandle, No Man's Land, and, incidentally, Texas at large, to a condition of such proper behavior that nowhere in the country is life and property safer than in the very localities where only a few years ago the cow thief and train robber reigned supreme. Their species have become scarce and hard to catch there now, and the skittish officials who used to shield them have been trained to stand hitched. The story of a reform like that is worth the telling, for it is the unwritten history of a territory so vast that if moved to the Atlantic seaboard, it would extend from New York to Chicago, from Lake Erie to the Gulf of Mexico, it is an area equal to that of France and England combined, with Wales, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and Switzerland thrown in for good measure. Furthermore, it is the story of a man 
who, in making that history, faced death almost daily, often under those supreme conditions when the slightest hesitancy, the twitch of a muscle or the bat of an eyelid, a little quiver, as he put it, would have been fatal. It is the story of a man who time and again charged into the last retreat of armed and desperate murderers and brought them out handcuffed, the living ones, of course. It is the story of a man who, according to Major Bloxham, in his report of the Brownsville Troubles of 1906, would charge hell with a bucket of water. In a word, it is the story of a man who has done things, who is still doing them, and whose kind is passing away forever. Taming the Panhandle The Texas Panhandle is that portion of the state which lies directly south of what was no man's land. Its shape suggests its name, and its name suggests limitless areas of waving grass, vast roving herds, cowboys and ponies, both of the unbridled variety, bad men whose chief business was to start graveyards, and the glad primeval lawlessness that prevails when the worlds are new. Not so many years ago, the Panhandle was distinctly a world apart, and a new one, with no man's land on the north, Indian territory on the east, and New Mexico on the west, civilization could come only from the south, and it did not come very fast. Indeed, there was still plenty of territory to the southward to be subdued, two or three tiers of counties, in fact, before the panhandle would be reached. So, it was a place apart, an isolated, fertile land, justifying the assertion of a tramp that he had lost a $100,000 there in one year by not having cattle to eat up the grass. The cattle came in due time, fighting back the Apache and Comanche, protected by rangers from Fort Griffin, accompanied by stockmen of every nation, cowboys of every grade, and criminals of every breed. That was a wild epic, chaotic and picturesque, a time of individual administration and untempered justice. It was also a time of mighty domain. Ranches there were as big as some kingdoms. One, the XIT, covered a good portion of the northern part of the Panhandle. Another, the Matador, spread itself into five counties. The settlement became thicker, when there were ranch houses not more than 25 miles apart. Official allotment of the lands was made. Then there was a grand gobble. The big stockmen fenced everything with little regard for boundaries and less for the law. With such examples as these in high places, it is not strange that a general indifference for legal rights and possessions prevailed. Next to cattle raising, cattle stealing was the chief industry. The cowboy proper was not concerned in such work. He was likely to be a clean-handed, straightforward, even if reckless individual, honest according to his lights. True, Loyalty to his employer might render him a trifle indifferent as to brands and marks when strays mixed with the herd, but it was the employer and not the cowboy who profited by such laxity. The cowboy was a retainer who would fight for his ranch, would die for it when circumstances seemed to require such a sacrifice, and the increase of the ranch herd by any means short of actual raid and theft was a custom which bore no relation to disrepute. But, individually, the cowboy was likely to be the soul of honor and good nature, troublesome only on holidays when he was moved to ride into the nearest settlement, drink up all the whiskey he could buy, and then, with six-shooter drawn, go careening up and down the streets, shooting in random directions, explaining, meantime, with nosy and repetitious adjectives, 
that he was a bad man, a very bad man from very far up the creek. On such inspired occasions, he would sometimes exclaim, Hide out, little ones! Dad's come home drunk! After which he would let go a round of ammunition, and the inhabitants of that neighborhood, regardless of size, would proceed to hide out, as admonished. Sometimes a whole group of cowboys would engage in this pastime, whereupon the rest of the town disappeared and sat in cellars or flattened themselves under beds until this cyclone passed by. It was in such manner that the cowboy found relaxations and social joy. He was not a bad man in spite of his declaration. He was not really hunting for trouble and would be the last to kill without offense. The truly bad man was of entirely different makeup, always posing and sometimes accepted as a man of valor. He was, nearly every case, merely a boaster and a coward. He would kill when he got the drop on his man, and he built his reputation upon such murders. He passed as a cowboy when he was merely a cow thief, as a hero when he was only an assassin. Driven into the corner, he would fight, but his favorite method was to slay from ambush. It was seldom that his reckless disregard for human life included his own. The panhandle was full of bad men in the early 90s. Most of them had graduated from other schools of crime and found here a last resort. Some of them, a good many of them, had obtained official positions and were outlaws and deputies by turns, or worked conjunctively as both. As a rule, they were in one way and another associated with the gang. Local authorities, even when conscientious, were poorly equipped to cope with such an element and it was for Company B Ranger Force, consisting of eight men, with quarters at Amarillo, Captain W.J. McDonald commanding, to police this vast wilderness, and to capture and convert, or otherwise tame, its undesirable citizens. Some of them would not wait to be captured. Some, of course, could not be tamed alive. Others, and these were not a few, would be able to wield official influence through which they would escape conviction, regardless of the evidence. Soon after McDonald's appointment, he was notified of a marauding band that were committing the usual crimes across in Hutchinson County. They had burned the hay belonging to a ranchman on Turkey Creek, several hundred tons in quantity. They had cut his wire fences. They had killed cows for their calves, butchered beef cattle, cut out brands. In a word, they had conducted the business of cattle stealing and general depredation on a large scale. Taking a portion of his force, Captain McDonald went over to investigate. There seemed to be a good deal of mystery concerning the identity of the offenders. But a mystery of that sort does not stand a very good chance when it is operated upon by a man with eyes like those of Captain Bill and with a nose and a pair of ears of his peculiar pattern. In a short time, he had identified one member of the band in a young man prominently connected in that section. This young fellow, a dupe no doubt, of professional cow thieves whose glittering reputation as bad men had dazzled him, was the son of an able and reputable lawyer, a member of the state legislature. The son, supposed to be a cowboy, had become, in reality, an outlaw. Captain McDonald took him in charge one day, questioned him, and secured sufficient evidence to file a complaint. The prisoner was turned over to the sheriff of Hutchinson County, and Captain Bill pursued his investigation. He located a bunch of stolen calves, herded in the breaks of the Canadian River, guarded by another member of the gang. He brought a man who had lost a number of milk cows and calves to identify the calves. 
no very difficult matter, for the man declared that he knew them as well as he knew his own children. The cows had been killed for their calves, and the latter had been hobbled and necked. After locating the calves, Captain MacDonald investigated the canyons, and after several days found the cows that had been shot and killed. One after another, the missing bunches of cattle were located, and the members of the band were brought in and lodged in jail. The case against them was clear. They were found with the stolen property. Some of them did not even attempt to make their denial. Their examining trial was held at Plemons, the county seat of Hutchinson County. And the settlers gathered from far and near for the event. The trial was held in a big barn of a courthouse, and the prisoners were bound over to the district court. The rangers were preparing to take them to Panhandle City, where there were safer and more commodious quarters, when the sheriff, who had already distinguished himself by setting free the prominent young outlaw first captured, appeared and demanded the prisoners, on the grounds that, being sheriff of that county, they could not be removed without his consent. The ranger captain promptly informed him that, sheriff or no sheriff, he had shown his disqualifications for the office, and that these prisoners would be taken to more secure quarters than he seemed willing to provide. The officer departed, and presently mustered a crowd, armed with Winchesters. Then he appeared once more before Captain Bill, produced the law which, under proper conditions, might have supported him in his demand, and again declared that he would have those prisoners, or that there would be bloodshed and several ranger funerals. Captain Bill promptly called his men together. We are not going to stand any foolishness, he said. If an attempt is made to take these prisoners, cut down on anyone who takes a hand in it. Come, let us move on now and get these men in jail. The crowd that had gathered expected battle, then and there. But nothing of the kind took place. The sheriff's armed bluff had been called. Later, he obtained a writ of habeas corpus but it was not effective for the reason that the men had been committed under bond. At all events, it was not effective so long as MacDonald and his rangers were in charge of the jail. It was now evident that conviction of these offenders was not to be expected in that county. Most of them had official influence of one kind or another. In fact, there appeared to be nobody, except those whose property had suffered, who seemed concerned in bringing these bandits to justice. With such overwhelming evidence, MacDonald was determined, if possible, to secure their punishment. He kept them in jail several months, and eventually was instrumental in getting their cases distributed and sent to other counties for trial. Even so, they managed to evade the law. Through influence of one kind or another, in cooperation of officials, former associates perhaps, in the business of crime, their cases were one by one dismissed. In spite of this miscarriage of justice, the general effect of MacDonald's vigorous prosecution was wholesome. The members of the band either left for the far isolations or decided to reform. The case is given, one of many such, as an example of what the honest official had to contend with in the early panhandle days. Sometimes, indeed, justice was even more openly and briskly sidetracked. Once, when Captain Bill had caught a notorious cattle thief red-handed, he brought him to trial and secured his conviction by jury. The judge, instead of passing sentence, 
took the law wholly into his own hands and administered it in a manner rather startling for its unexpectedness and originality. He delivered an elaborate oration, which no one in the courtroom comprehended in any large degree, himself included perhaps, and then read a lengthy decision concerning captures made upon the high seas, closing with his own decision to the effect that the clause covered this particular case as perfectly as if it had been made for it, and that the entire proceedings were irregular, irrelevant, without warrant, and without effect, concluding his amazing declaration with the statement that the prisoner was discharged. Cases like these would have discouraged and disgruntled a man of less reputation and less character than Bill MacDonald. To him, such things only meant renewed determination, strong in the knowledge that unless he happened to be killed, he would eventually make criminals scarce and corrupt or weak-kneed officials unpopular in that section. He gave neither rest nor respite to those who broke the law on the field or to those who warped and disfigured it in the courts. Individually and in groups, he brought the bad man in and filled the jails with them and the boxcars. And when neither was handy, he lariated them out, set a guard, and rode off after more. When he failed to convict in one court, he tried another. And when he found an honest official, he kept him busy. In a recent letter written by Colonel W. Camp of San Antonio to Edward House, one of the best-known citizens of Texas, the writer says, and I quote, When Captain McDonald was captain of the Rangers in Texas and doing his most effective work, I was district attorney of the 35th Judicial District in the Panhandle, and I learned to love, respect, and admire this fearless officer who always placed duty before his own life. In those days, on the frontier of Texas, it was almost worth a man's life to uphold the majesty of the law. And the five years of such experience I had in doing so teaches me the value of such men as Captain Bill MacDonald. History should hand down his name for the coming generations by the side of the heroes of the Alamo and San Jacinto. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Chapter 21 The Battle with Matthews It was strange indeed that MacDonald did not happen to get killed in those busy days of the early 90s. One of the favorite vows of tough panhandlers was to shoot Bill MacDonald on sight. But the reader will remember that there was a suddenness and vigor about Bill MacDonald's manner and method that was very bad for a vow like that when the moment for its execution arrived. Still, there were those who tried to make good, and one of these, duly assisted, came nearer being successful. He would have succeeded, no doubt, if he had had time. The man's name was John Pierce Matthews, which became simply John Pierce, after its owner had got the drop on a steamboat captain one day in Louisiana and shot him dead. He took the new name with him to the panhandle, where in due time he got the drop on another man, somewhere up in the northern tier of the counties with the same result. This was a good while before he had come down to Childress County and got to be sheriff. But there were those who had not forgotten, and among them was Captain Bill MacDonald. Then, stopping at Wichita Falls, Matthews, or Pierce as he was called, frequently came down to the falls for a spree, 
and on one such visit made application to join a secret society. MacDonald was a prominent member of that society, and Matthews did not get in. This stirred the animosity of Matthews, and he began to clean his six-shooter daily and to practice sudden and accurate firing, which he knew would be necessary in case of a showdown. By and by, there was a sheriff convention at Houston, and on a boat excursion between Houston and Galveston, Matthews spoke disrespectfully to Governor Hogg, who was on board. MacDonald, who was also present, promptly called Matthews to account, and a general settlement might have been reached then and there had well-meaning but misguided friends of both parties not interfered and spoiled a very pretty sheriff's picnic newspaper story. As it was, Matthews kept on oiling his pistol and practicing, meantime enlisting the sympathy of friends, to whom he had confided that someday, when he had a little leisure, he was going to look up Bill MacDonald and kill him, suggesting that they be present and take a hand, they being of the sort naturally interested in such an enterprise. Matthews had another enemy, one Joe Beckham, sheriff of Motley County, an officer of his own kind who presently got as short as possible in his accounts, absconded, and set out for Indian territory. Matthew had no right to go outside of his own county after a fugitive, and no business in this matter anyway, as he wanted Beckham only for a misdemeanor, whereas he was charged in his own county with a felony. But Matthews had an itch for Beckham on his own account, so he picked up another enemy of Beckham named Cook, a citizen of Motley, with an ambition for Beckham's office, and the two came with peaceful attitude and fair words to Quanna, where Captain Bill was then stopping requesting the loan of a ranger to go over into the territory after the defaulting officer. MacDonald refused, but said he would send a man as far as the territory line, ranger authority not extending beyond the border. He did send one Ranger McClure, who, being strongly persuaded, overstepped at the same instant both his authority and the state line, captured Beckham, whom he lost through a writ of habeas corpus, fell into a plot devised by Matthews and Cook to get rid of him, and was finally brought back to Quanna by Captain Bill, who drove a hundred miles on a bad night to get him out of the mess, after which McClure was a wiser and better ranger. Beckham, meanwhile, had fallen a victim to remorse, or more likely had been promised immunity, and now hurried over to Quanna and gave himself up again to Ranger McClure, Captain Bill being absent from Quanna at the time. Beckham asked to be taken to Matador, county seat of Motley, for trial and begged McClure to see him through Childress, where he expected to be killed by Matthews and Cook. McClure assured Beckham that he would see him safely to Matador, and they set out by rail for Childress, at which point they would take a team for the Motley county seat. Matthews was on hand at Childress. He demanded Beckham of McClure, who refused to deliver his prisoner. Matthews then started to organize a posse to take Beckham. Word of this came to McClure, who promptly gave his prisoner a revolver and told him to help defend himself. Matthews and his crowd now tried to enlist the cooperation of Sheriff Cunningham of Abilene, who, as soon as he understood the situation, resigned from the Matthews force and offered to assist the McClure contingent. 
McClure thanked him, but said he guessed he'd go along to Matador now with his prisoner, as the team was waiting. Captain Bill was in Matador when Ranger and prisoner arrived, and Beckham was jailed without further difficulty. Cook got appointed sheriff by the commissioner's court, but the district judge refused to accept him and selected a man named Moses for the job, whereupon Cook refused to sign and Captain Bill was sent over to turn him out which he did with promptness and vigor. On his way back to Quanah, waiting for a train in Childress, Matthews appeared and demanded that McDonald dismiss Ranger McClure on general charges connected with the Beckham episode. McDonald, mildly but firmly, refused and spoke his mind pretty freely on the subject, all of which added fuel to the old resentment which Matthews nursed and nourished in his bosom for Captain Bill. If Matthews wanted to commit suicide, he began preparing for it now, in the right way. He gave it out openly that he was going to wander over to Quanah someday and kill Bill McDonald, just as a matter of pastime, and he sent word to the same effect by any of Captain Bill's friends that he found going that way. Perhaps he thought these messages of impending death would unnerve the ranger captain and interfere with his sleep. That was bad judgment. Bill McDonald needed only the anticipation of a little pistol practice like that to make him sleep like an angel child. I didn't talk as loud as he did, nor as much, Captain Bill said afterwards. I reckon he thought I was afraid of him. Matthews had really cut the work out for himself, however, and had enlisted help for the occasion. He was satisfied with his target practice and the condition of his firearms, and he had taken to wearing a plug of tobacco or a Bible, or something solid like that in his coat pocket, just over his heart, about where one of Bill McDonald's bullets would be apt to strike, provided the ranger happened to get a bead on him, though he planned against that, too. It was in December 1895 at last that Matthews and his pals came down to Quanah for the declared purpose of killing a ranger captain. It was a cold, dreary day, and they visited one saloon after another, getting a supply of courage for the job, and explaining what they were going to do. Then, they took to following MacDonald, always in a group, evidently waiting the proper opportunity, confident enough that MacDonald would not take the offensive. Finally, however, they pressed him so close that he suddenly turned and told them to quit following him, or trouble would ensue. Perhaps it did not seem a good place to do the job, there being no sort of protection. Perhaps there was something disquieting in the manner of Captain Bill's warning. They dropped away for the time. And MacDonald gave the matter no further thought. Men threatening to kill him was an item on every day's program. It was nearly dusk of that bleak day, and MacDonald was in the railway station, sending an official telegram to his men at Amarillo, when an old man named Crutcher, whom MacDonald knew, came in with word that Matthews wanted to see him and fix up matters without any more trouble. Captain Bill regarded Crutcher keenly. Evidently, he was sincere enough. John says he wants to see you and fix up everything right, repeated the old man persuasively. Captain Bill finished writing his telegram and sent it. Then, turning to old man Crutcher, he said in his slow, mild way, Well... That all sounds mighty good to me. I never want any trouble that I can help. Come on, let's go find him.
They left the depot on the side toward the town, and as they did so, they saw the sheriff of Hardeman County, whose name was Dick Coffer, with Matthews and two of the latter's friends, coming to meet them. Sheriff Coffer was a step ahead of Matthews when they started across the street. Old Man Crutcher, in a friendly way, put his arm through McDonald's as they advanced. When they were but four or five feet between the groups, all stopped, and there was a little silence. Then McDonald's said, Well, and Matthews answered, keeping Coffer just a trifle in advance. Well, what is it, Bill? Captain Bill began quietly. I understand that you have been saying some pretty hard things about me and that you all are going to wipe up the earth with me. Is that so? Matthews edged a trifle nearer to Coffer. No, I didn't say that. But by God, I'll tell you what I did say. At the same moment, pointing his left index finger in McDonald's face while his right hand slipped in the direction of his hip pocket. Captain Bill saw the movement and his own hand dropped into his side overcoat pocket where in winter he carried a part of his armament. Matthew's practice in drawing for some reason failed to benefit him. His gun seemed to hang a little in the scabbard. A second later... He had jerked it free, and stepping behind Coffer, fired at Captain Bill over the sheriff's right shoulder. But the slight hitch spoiled his aim, perhaps for the bullet missed, passing through McDonald's overcoat collar, though the range was so short that the powder burned his face. The game now could be considered open. Captain Bill, with a quick movement that was between a skip and a step, got around Coffer and let go two shots in quick succession at Matthews. But the latter's breast piece was a success. Both of McDonald's bullets struck within the space of a 50-cent piece, just above Matthew's heart, penetrated a thick plug of Star Navy, found a heavy notebook behind it, and stopped. With a thought process which may be regarded as cool for such a moment, Captain Bill realized that for some reason he could not kill Matthews by shooting him on that side, and shifted his aim. Matthews, meantime, had again dodged behind Coffer, who now dropped flat to the ground, where it was quieter. Captain Bill was bending forward at the time, trying to get a shot around Coffer, and as the later dropped, Matthews fired, the bullet striking McDonald in the left shoulder, ranging down through his lung to the small of his back, traveling two-thirds of the length of his body for lodgment. He started to cock his gun when he received another ball in his right shoulder, The ranger was knocked backward, but did not fall. Matthews quickly fired again, but McDonald was near enough now to knock the gun aside with his own, and the ball passed through his hat brim. Aiming at Matthews' other shoulder, McDonald let go his third shot, and Matthews fell. Meantime, the two deputy assassins had opened fire, and one of them had sent two bullets through McDonald's left arm. To these he gave no attention until Matthews dropped. Wheeling now, he started to cock his gun when he received another ball, this time in his right shoulder, along which it traveled to his neck, thence around the windpipe to the left side. His fingers were paralyzed by this wound, and he made an effort to cock his gun with his teeth. But there was no further need, for with the collapse of Matthews, his co-murderers fled wildly to cover behind the depot, nearly upsetting a boxcar in their hurry, as a spectator remarked. Captain Bill walked a few steps to the sidewalk. There was a post there, 
and holding to this, he eased himself to a sitting position. A man ran up. Cap, how about it? Well, I think I'm a dead rabbit. They gathered him up and took him to a drugstore, and they took Matthews to a drugstore across the street. By and by, they carried Captain Bill home, and a doctor came to hunt for the bullets. Don't fool around with the one on my neck, Doc, Captain Bill said. Go after the one in the small of my back and let out the blood. There's a bucket of it sloshing around in there. The doctor obeyed orders. It was proper to gratify a dying man. Now, Doc, the ranger captain said when the operation was over and the surplus cargo had been removed, now I'll get well. And Rhoda McDaniel, his nervy wife, who had arrived on the scene, echoed this belief. If Bill Jess says he'll get well, he'll do it, she declared. But this was a minority opinion. And that night, when it was rumored that Captain Bill would not pull through, there were threats that in case he didn't, the two men who had trained with Matthews would be strung up without further notice. Some word of this was brought to Captain Bill, perhaps as a message of comfort. Don't you do it, boys, he said. I'm going to get well. Even if I don't, I want the law to take its course. I'm opposed to lynching. Matthews died in a few days. He was removed to Childress and died there. Before his death, he sent word to MacDonald. You acted the man all through, was his message. I'm only sorry that I can't see you and apologize. Tell him that I'm doing all right, was the answer returned, and that I hope he'll get well. The mending of Captain Bill was a slow process. For about two months he was laid up, and then, with his wife, he sojourned for a time at a sanitarium. After that, he was up once more, pale and stooped, but ready and eager for action. In time, he was apparently as fit as ever, though, in truth, the physical repairing was never quite complete. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Chapter 27, The Wichita Falls Bank Robbery and Murder The absence of Captain Bill and his rangers from the panhandle was construed by Kid Lewis as an invitation to rob a bank. He selected the City National of Wichita Falls for his purpose, and with a partner named Crawford, rode up to that institution one day about noon, and entering, demanded the bank funds. Cashier Frank Dorsey, failing to comply with that demand, was shot dead. H. H. Langford, bookkeeper, was wounded, and the vice president of the bank escaped by having in his left breast pocket a small case of surgical instruments. This deflected the ball, which otherwise would have entered his heart. The robbers then secured whatever money was in sight, about $600 in gold and silver, and ran out the back door, mounted their waiting horses, and galloped away. The citizens were by this time alarmed, and a number set out in pursuit, full speed. There was a running fight during which Lewis's horse was shot, but an instant later he was clear of it, and, leaping behind Crawford, the two went plunging away, double until they met an old man driving into town with a single horse. This they appropriated forthwith, leaving their pursuers a good way behind. Still, further on they crossed Holiday Creek, and came to a field where a man was plowing. They now abandoned their blown horses and, at the point of a gun, took his heavy Clydesdale team 
and once more dashed away, making for the Wichita River. Their pursuers gained on the clumsy animals and fired several more shots at the fugitives, then decided to return and organize a posse, which they raised in short order. This posse followed the track of Lewis and Crawford beyond the Wichita River to a place where the robbers had taken to the thick brush overgrowing the river bottom. Here, the trail was lost. Captain McDonald, returning from Fort Worth, had got as far as Bellevue in the adjoining county when he was met by a telegram containing the news of what had happened that morning at Wichita Falls. He immediately wired the authorities at the falls to have horses in readiness for himself and his men. The rangers reached the city at about two in the afternoon and, mounting the horses already waiting, dashed away in the direction the robbers had taken. With him, Captain Bill had Rangers McCauley, Harwell, Sullivan, Queen, and McClure. The tried, picked men whom Lewis and Crawford had been most anxious to avoid. The horses were picked, too, for speed and endurance, and went at a wild, headlong gait, almost too headlong for safety. A small creek that had become a bed of mud lay across the road, and Captain Bill's horse, stumbling on the brink, sent him headfirst into the soft mixture which literally daubed him from head to foot before he could get on his feet. His men thought for a moment that he was killed, but he rose spluttering and swearing, wholly unhurt, though fearfully disfigured, and with no time to remove his disguise, instantly mounting, he galloped on, a sight to behold, the others respectfully restraining any tendency to mirth. Presently, they met the local posse coming back. The posse had given up the chase, but was able to furnish information. Captain Bill and his rangers learned where the robbers had disappeared and pressed on in that direction, the posse following. It was now getting toward evening and would soon be dusk. It was desirable to make an end of matters by daylight, if possible, and the rangers wasted no time. They picked up their way rapidly into the thick undergrowth of the bottoms and suddenly, in a bend of the river, discovered the Clydesdale horses tied close to the bank. Their riders were believed to be close by, and the rangers expected to be fired upon at any moment. Without waiting for any such reception, they charged in the direction of the horses, with no other result than that Ranger Sullivan broke a stirrup, fell, and with a fractured rib, retired from action. Lewis and Crawford had abandoned the horses, and their trail led down the river bank. The rangers also left their horses at this point, for it was hard going. MacDonald now took Queen and Harwell one on either side of him, their guns in readiness, while he gave his attention to the trail. The light was getting very dim, but Captain Bill is a natural trailer and followed the tracks without difficulty. Here and there they found a stray articles which the men had dropped in their flight. Finally, the tracks led to the river where it was evident the bandits had crossed. It was February and the water was very cold. Captain Bill had not yet recovered from the terrible bullet wounds received in the fight with Matthews two months before, and was bent and debilitated, but he did not falter. With Queen and Harwell, he plunged in and waded the icy water, chin deep, to the other side. Twice more the trail led to the river and crossed, and twice more MacDonald and his men waded that bitter current, holding their firearms above their heads their bodies literally numb with cold. It was a severe experience, but as Captain Bill said afterward, it removed a good deal of his mud. 
McDonald now made up his mind that the robbers would be likely to cross a road that had been cut through the bottoms and head toward the territory, which they were evidently trying to reach, believing the rangers would not follow them across the line. He called to one of his men, Ranger McClure, who appeared just then a little distance away, to get all the force he could and guard that road, while he, MacDonald, with Queen and Harwell, would continue to beat the brush and search carefully through the bottoms. At that moment, Lewis and Crawford were near enough to hear this order, and the realization that it was Bill MacDonald and his rangers who were on their trail gave them a sudden and more severe chill than the icy water they had waded. They had been heading for the territory, as MacDonald suspected, but decided to change their course toward a creek that ran parallel with the river. On their way to it, they were obliged to cross an open field, and though by this time it was night, between nine and ten o'clock, a full moon had risen, and they were discovered by the men guarding the road and fired upon. They returned fire as they ran, but no damage was done on either side. Meantime, MacDonald and his two companions, nearly perishing with wet and cold, having come upon a horse in their search, had stopped to try for a cup of hot coffee. At the sound of the shots, they rushed out. A horse was hitched at the door, and Captain Bill leaped into the saddle and hurried in the direction of the alarm. As he approached, he saw in the moonlight a crowd, the local posse, gathered on the little hill overlooking the wheat field where the robbers had crossed. The ranger captain fully expected to find the captured or dead bandits in that crowd and called out as he came up, Boys, where are they? Where are the robbers? They pointed in the direction of some brush about a quarter mile away. They went into that creek bottom yonder. Well then, what in the devil are y'all doing up here? Somebody answered. You must think we're damn fools to go in there after those fellas. Of course we didn't go in there and didn't intend to. Well, said Captain Bill, I'm going, and if any of you fellows want to go, come ahead, but I don't want any man that don't go willingly. Ranger Macaulay had ridden up. You can't get away from me, Uncle Bill. The two loped off in the direction of the thicket, but presently found their way barred by a wire fence. Leaving their horses, they made a circuit around the enclosure and soon struck what seemed to be a road leading into the bottom. Hurrying along, they came upon Ranger McClure, who had been in charge of the posse when the shooting had occurred, and had set out alone to locate the robbers. "'Hello, Bob. Where are they?' asked Captain Bill as he and Macaulay came up. "'Right over there, Cap. They ran in the bush, over yonder by the big tree. "'Well, boys, we've got to get them. We'll charge in there.' They pushed rapidly into the bushes without further parley, MacDonald heading for the tree, Macaulay and McClure spreading out to the right. Captain Bill made straight for the big tree pointed out by McClure, his gun ready for quick service. It was a still, moonlit place, but brushy and full of shadows and not easy going. The crack of Winchesters might be expected at any moment. Suddenly, the captain found himself confronted by a creek, and looking across, saw two men with guns squatting in the weeds. They appeared to be on the point of raising their guns to fire, but with MacDonald's appearance and his sharp command, Hold up there! Made from behind his own leveled Winchester, they were unable to complete the action. Their guns dropped into their laps. They seemed stupefied. 
Throw up your hands was the next order. The hands went up. Get up from there. One of the men found his voice. We can't, Captain. Our guns are lying across our laps, cocked. They'll go off if we get up. Get up or I'll turn you over. They rose hastily, their guns sliding to the ground. Back off there now and face the other way. They obeyed like soldiers on drill. Captain Bill stepped into the creek about three feet deep and waded across. He noticed a bag, doubtless containing the stolen money, and observed that the robbers had laid their cartridges out in a log for convenient use. At that moment, Macaulay and McClure came hurrying up, apparently ready to shoot. Hold up, boys. It's all right, said MacDonald. I got him. Macaulay and McClure waded across and assisted in searching the prisoners. A purse of gold was found in one of the men's pockets. The sack on the ground contained silver. Now let's get out of this, said MacDonald, and get to where it's warm. You're not going to make us wade that cold creek, are you? said Lewis, shivering. Look here, said Captain Bill. If you don't get across there, and pretty quick, too, I'll duck you. Head first. You've made me wade the water up to my neck all afternoon. They all crossed then, the fifth time in the cold water that day for MacDonald, and made their way to where he and Macaulay had left their horses. Here they got a rope and bound the prisoners, their arms behind them. Captain Bill then called to the posse, still waiting in the road a quarter of a mile away, listening for the sound of the shots that would probably bring down rangers. Come on, boys, we got them. So they came lickety-brindle, but presently stopped. Captain, are you sure you got them? Yeah, I got them and got them tied. Come on, there's no danger now. The crowd tore through the brush to get over there, and some of them began abusing the captured men, declaring they had murdered the best man in Wichita Falls and furnishing a graphic outline of what would happen to them in consequence. What they said was all true enough, maybe, but the saying of it seemed in rather poor taste to Captain Bill. Look here, he said, these men are my prisoners, now you let them alone. He marched Lewis and Crawford over to Mark Boger's ranch, where all got some hot coffee and something to eat. Boger also supplied a wagon in which to haul the prisoners. It was MacDonald's first intention to take the men to Henrietta for safekeeping, but against his judgment he was persuaded to take them to Wichita Falls. He gave orders, however, that none of the crowd should leave, as he did not wish the news of the captain to travel ahead of them realizing that a mob of citizens would likely gather. On the way to the falls, the rangers fell into conversation with Lewis, and Macaulay and Harwell discussed with him the fight that he and Hill Loftus and others had made that night in the dugout when Joe Beckham had been killed. Lewis explained how he and Red Buck and Loftus had managed to slip away without being seen. Then MacDonald said, Boys, how was it you didn't shoot me a while ago when you saw me coming through the bushes? You all had your guns cocked and ready, and you knew you'd be hung anyway if you got caught. You saw me first. Why didn't you shoot? Cap, said Lewis, we thought you were out of the country and wouldn't get back before we could get to the territory. When we heard you giving orders and knew who it was, we lost our nerve. And when we saw you, we somehow got paralyzed. 
When the procession had arrived within a mile or two of the falls, Captain MacDonald, realizing that someone had doubtless slipped away and carried the news, sent one of his men to have the jail door open in order that there might be no delay in entering. His suspicion was correct, for the news had traveled, and though it was then about two o'clock in the morning, several hundred men were congregated about the jail when the rangers with their prisoners arrived. Captain Bill rode ahead and opened the way with his gun. Give room here, men, he commanded, and the way was open. Lewis and Crawford were marched into the jail, Rangers Macaulay and Queen being left to guard the door. The prisoners were taken to cells, carefully searched, and locked in. Captain MacDonald then descended to disperse the crowd, which had grown noisy and ugly in its demand for the prisoners, and was apparently making ready to attack the jail. Captain Bill addressed this assembly. Boys, he said, I reckon you're all my friends, and if you are, you'll go home now and go to bed. My rangers and I captured these men, and they are our prisoners. We've got them locked up, and they'll have a fair trial. You men didn't capture them, and you have nothing to do with them. They're unarmed now, and they can't defend themselves. But if you make an attack on this jail, I'll give the prisoners their guns, and we'll lick this crowd. I command you to disperse immediately. If you don't, we'll begin business right now. The mob dispersed. Some of the leaders wanted to call Captain Bill away to discuss matters, but he would have none of it and cleared the grounds. Then, in spite of his wet, cold, weary condition and the terrible wounds received less than three months before, he stayed with his men on guard till morning. Then a message was brought to him that Hill Loftus had been concerned in the robbery and that he was hiding in a dugout near town. Knowing that Loftus and Lewis trained together, Captain MacDonald did not discredit this report or suspect that it was part of a ruse to get him away from the jail. He ordered a horse from the stable at once and made ready to start. "'Aren't you going to take your men with you?' asked the men who brought the word. "'No,' said Captain Bill. "'I want them to stay here.' But Loftus is a bad man and will have the advantage of you being in the dugout. That's all right. I could take care of him, but I do want somebody to come and show me the place. A man volunteered to do this and rode with Captain Bill to a dugout some distance away in the edge of the town. The place was empty, but another man appeared just then who claimed to have seen Loftus leave a little while before, taking a northerly direction. Still unsuspecting, Captain Bill set out at full speed, but after riding three miles and seeing no sign of Loftus or his trail, he rode back to Wichita Falls. At the edge of the town, he was met by his nephew, Henry McCauley, with the news that everybody who could get a gun had marched on the jail, and that no doubt Lewis and Crawford were already hung. Captain Bill did not wait for another word. A mob of several hundred men had gathered about the jail, wild with excitement determined to have Lewis and Crawford, and to lynch them. Suddenly, this multitude saw Captain Bill bearing down on them, his Winchester in possession for business and fury in his eye. Boys, have you still got the prisoners? Boys, he called to his rangers as he dashed up, have you still got the prisoners? Yes, they called back, they're still in the jail. Captain Bill wheeled on the mob. Now, he shouted, damn you sorry souls, march out of here and march away from this jail. Every one of you are all fill this yard with dead men. He lay his Winchester leveled as he spoke, and those who considered themselves in range made a wild hasty effort to get 
into some safer locality. Captain Bill swung the point of his gun so it covered a good many in its orbit, and nobody knew when it might go off. They knew if it did go off, it would hit whatever spot he selected, and nobody wanted to own that spot. The crowd moved, some of it hurried a good deal, and Captain Bill helped things along with language. He escorted the mob well into town. The ranger captain now prepared to move his prisoners to Fort Worth, but was notified by the district judge that this could not be done, that any attempt to do so would result in general trouble with the citizens of Wichita Falls. MacDonald protested that the citizens had already shown that they were unable to take care of the prisoners in a legal way. The judge said, I will appoint 25 men to guard the jail. You mean you will appoint 25 men to keep me from taking Lewis and Crawford away, MacDonald said. No, only to help you guard them. But if you have a guard of 25 men, you don't need the Rangers. The judge argued for the moral support of the Rangers. MacDonald informed him that it was impossible for his force to remain in Wichita Falls guarding prisoners, that other work was waiting for them, that there was already a requisition for them at Quanah, that furthermore, they had been away from their headquarters for two weeks, besides being wet and cold and worn out from exposure and want of sleep. Let the others go, Captain, and you stay, urged the judge. Judge, said Captain Bill, you know I'm all shot up. And it's the first time I've rode any. And what with yesterday and last night and today, I'm about used up and likely to be sick. Now, if you can take care of those prisoners with your guard, all right. If you think you can't, I'll take them to Fort Worth where they'll be safe. But I'm going to get out of here tonight unless you get an order from Governor Culberson for me to stay. It ain't far to the telegraph office, only about 30 steps. You can go and wire him if you want to. If he says for me to stay, I will, of course. But otherwise, I'm going. I've done my whole duty now. When I get prisoners in jail and guarded, my duty ends. Your guard of 25 men with your local officers can hold that jail if they want to. I could hold it alone. No order came to the rangers from Governor Culberson. And they left that afternoon when the local guard had been duly installed. That night, the mob once more marched on the jail, and in spite of the armed guard and the sheriff, deputies, and constables, Lewis and Crawford were taken from their cells and hung to telephone poles, close to the bank where they had committed their crime. Citizens of Wichita Falls complained to Governor Culberson that Captain MacDonald and his rangers had gone away, leaving the prisoners to the mercy of the mob. Culberson wired to MacDonald, and, receiving the facts in reply, commended him throughout. A reward of $2,000 for the capture of Lewis and Crawford was paid by the two banks of Wichita Falls. The local posse divided it into 32 equal parts, in which they generously permitted the rangers to share. Captain Bill McDonald's Creed No man in the wrong can stand up against a fellow that's in the right and keeps on a-coming. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.